So Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 11, and we will read through to the end of the chapter. And Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself... He said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants." And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. As I mentioned, this is the first of two messages. And I have entitled the messages, The Parable of the Lost Sons. 
Because as we will see from this famous teaching of Jesus, the story is not about only about a lost son who leaves his father's house, but it is also about the other lost son who remains. Now, saying a person is lost is commonplace in Christian circles. It's a word we often use to speak of unbelievers. But what do we mean when we say that a person is lost? Well, we know what lost means in its everyday sense. Something is missing. Something is not in its proper place. Or lost can have something to do with being unable to find a particular destination. I remember a while ago, I was heading to Santa Clarita to go to a um, physical therapist for my shoulder. Yes, this same shoulder. And I had printed out my Google Maps directions. I know it's so 2001, right? I don't have a cell phone, as most of you know. And uh, cell phones really do come in handy when you're looking for an address. And so I printed out my Google Maps, and as I'm driving around... Uh, I'm following these directions to a T. I'm turning on the proper streets. I'm doing everything the directions are telling me to do. And I'm looking for the destination that is 2800 of this block. And yet the street only goes to 2600. And as I'm sitting there at the end of this street, I'm staring in front of me at a mountain. And so I'm thinking, well, okay. Maybe it somehow reconnects on the other side, and so I drive around, and I'm trying to find my way around this mountain, and I can't figure out how to get there, and so I drive back around thinking, well, maybe I missed a turn somewhere, and there's a gentleman there with a cell phone on the corner, and I ask him if he could look it up on his cell phone for me. See, that's why I don't need a cell phone, because you guys all have them. And so he gets on his map and he plugs in the address and, 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 and one dot shows where we are and the other dot shows where 2800 is and yet the two dots are so close and yet what I'm looking at is a mountain in front of me and I'm trying to figure out where it all went wrong. Now by this time I'm late for the appointment, I decide to just turn around and go home. That is an example of being lost. Now, when we as Christians talk about someone being lost, we are talking about spiritually, right? So we know what it means to be physically lost. We are talking about spiritually lost. What does that mean? That means the person has no regard for the things of God. It means because of that they have no relationship with their Creator, which is what they exist for. And so they live their lives for the here and now. They live for the temporal pleasures of this life. They go from one experience to another, seeking to enjoy themselves as much as possible, and all the while, not knowing where they came from, why they are here, or where they are going when they die. They have no objective guide. They have no true purpose. They have no hopeful future. They live for themselves, much like driving around aimlessly without direction, and they often find themselves at some point staring at a mountain and wondering where it all went wrong. 
Now, the story we're going to look at is about a young man who is in a similar predicament. He decides he wants to pursue selfish pleasure as his greatest goal, and he quickly finds himself in desperate trouble. We saw over the last two weeks that this parable is part of a series of parables that Jesus taught where something is lost and then something is found. And so we have the parable of the lost sheep, we have the parable of the lost coin, and now we have the parable of the lost son. And all three parables are meant to correct a misconception the Pharisees had about people who lived sinful lives. People who were lost. They had a problem with Jesus because He spent time with people who they shunned and rejected and they thought Jesus should do the same. And if you remember, we saw this conflict in the first two verses. If you look back at 15 verse 1, it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So rather than Jesus joining with the Pharisees in their disdain for the lost, Jesus spends time with them, He eats with them, He teaches them about the kingdom. And to reveal God's attitude towards sinners, much to the frustration of the Pharisees, Jesus teaches these three parables. God's posture towards sinners is not that He is in heaven ready to crush them. He is not anxiously waiting to destroy them. Rather, He is like a shepherd who has lost a sheep. He is like a woman who has lost a silver coin. Both of those parables teach at least two things. First, that the main character in the parable has great joy when that thing is recovered. And second, that the lost item has value. So we saw that. That's kind of review. We saw that last time, the last couple of weeks. Both parables are meant to communicate that heaven has joy over sinners who are lost and found. Now, of course, this picture, this idea infuriates the Pharisees because their idea of holiness was to separate from such people, not try to reach them. And because of this, their attitude is the opposite of heaven's, whereas they are grumbling at the sinners coming to Jesus and heaven is simultaneously rejoicing. Now, Jesus continues on with a third parable to reveal God's heart towards people. People like the tax collector, people like the sinner, people like those who have made shipwreck of their lives. Beginning in verse 11. <clears throat> Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Now many a parent has experienced the pain of a wayward child. Whether that child is 13 or 30, 
when one of your children heads in the wrong direction and chooses a path of self-destruction, it brings a kind of grief like no other. Perhaps some of you know that feeling. You spend many years feeding and teaching and helping and guiding a child, and in the end, you find a kind of high-handed resistance against not only all that you believe, but against you. And that is the situation in this story. There's a father who has two sons, and one of his sons comes to him and says that he's leaving his father's way of life, and he demands his inheritance. Now, it's an unimaginable insult. It is a dagger to his father's heart. In the ancient Near East, inheritance was never spoken about when the father was in good health. And it was never brought up unless the father initiated the conversation. So a son coming to his father and demanding his inheritance is essentially saying, I don't want to wait around for you to die. I want my money now. This is beyond offensive. This is more than just the son breaking with tradition or custom. This is the son communicating disdain for his father and wishing he were dead. He wants what's coming to him so that he can leave his father's house once and for all, and never look back. His father is an obstacle to his happiness, and therefore he wants out. Give me what is mine. Now, we all know, based on the Ten Commandments, that honor to one's father and mother is a very important part of Jewish culture. I mean, it's one of God's ten major laws. And so to have such a selfish demand by a son who is so dishonorable to his father, you can almost picture the original audience gasping at such a command, such a demand from his son. It's such an audacious display of rebellion. And what the son wants is not just some spending money. He doesn't want to just go out for the weekend with his buddies. He wants his share of the estate. This would be a percentage of everything that his family owns. This would be a portion of the property. This would be a portion of their livestock. This would be somewhere between one-third and one-half of all the father possesses. And rather than the son showing faithfulness to his father who has given him everything, he wants his cut and he wants out. Now, Jesus doesn't give us a lot of details here. We don't see the reaction of the father. Surely he pleaded with his son not to do such a foolish thing. Surely He reminded Him of all the good things that are within His house. Surely He did as any parent would do and warned Him of the foolishness of venturing out on His own without a plan. 
Where would he go? What would he do? What was his plan? Now the father knows that this rebellion is going to come to no good. And I'm sure his feelings are a mixture of grief and worry. Because he loves his son and he knows that if his son doesn't radically change his priorities, it is not going to end well for him. Verse 13, not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. Now, notice it says, not many days later. Now, why the delay? I think there's a delay because he had no intention of ever returning and he had to turn his share of his father's property into cash. I think he probably liquidated his share and had a quick sale to get as much money as he could. This, of course, adds to the insult of his father because not only is he asking for his inheritance, but his inheritance is a chunk of the family estate And if you sell off a part of that property, it would greatly reduce the overall value of their estate. So he is not only uh, going to harm himself because of his rebellious course, but he he is harming his father and his brother. And so after this dishonorable exchange, after he turns everything into cash, We're told he gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. Now, this would be a reference to Gentile country. This would be, because this is a very Jewish context, it's a very Jewish setting, the listeners would recognize the implication here. The far off country means the pagans. This means that he's not only leaving his father, He's leaving his father's God. He thinks it would be better to leave the God of Israel and pursue life in a land that is far away. Now, God is so wise in writing the Scripture because this is something that happens in every generation. The devil takes a fool And he shows him all the kingdoms of the earth and their splendor. And he promises that you can have it all. Promises of freedom from authority. Promises of freedom from boredom. Promises of freedom from hard work and faithfulness. To enter into a life of pleasure and self-indulgence. And this mirage is propagated time and time again, and it always ends in the same place. How many times have you heard of the rock musician? They just want to make it big. Man, the band just wants to make it big. They want to have their name in lights. They want to hear their song on the radio. And they make it big. And what usually happens? It happens so often. They destroy themselves. They get hooked on drugs. 
They struggle with depression. Sometimes there's suicide. I remember an interview with a drummer from Guns N' Roses. And he said it was everything we ever wanted. We could party all day and all night. We had an endless supply of cocaine and heroin and whiskey and parties and girls and people screaming our name everywhere we went. And he said, every day I thought about killing myself. And that's because there's a spiritual force at work here And the lie is that true freedom is available to you if you are able to do anything your heart desires. And true freedom is not found in living in relationship to the God who created you. That's the lie. He points to slavery and calls it freedom. He points to freedom and calls it slavery. And that is the lie, and millions are believing it. And really, that's the kind of attitude that is the definition of sin. There's a catechism we used to read to our kids. A catechism is a question and answer format where the children memorize the answers, and it's a way for them to learn Christian doctrine. And I really liked their definition of sin. The question, what is sin? Sin is rejecting or ignoring God in the world He created. Rebelling against Him by living without reference to Him and not being or doing what He requires in His law. The younger son in this story believed the lie that to be away from his father would bring true freedom And so he takes the bait and he gives himself fully to this pursuit. And verse 13 says, he squandered his property in reckless living. Reckless means careless. It means irresponsible. It's to live for the moment. It's to give yourself to every excess and not give any thought to consequence. It's to spend so carelessly that you're just throwing your money at whatever impulsive self-indulgence comes your way. I remember before I was a Christian, in my early 20s, we got paid on Thursday. I was in the graphic arts industry. And we got paid on Thursday, and I'm not kidding you, by Thursday night, my paycheck was gone. And I had bills to pay, yes, and usually I was way behind on them, so I'd have to take a chunk of that and it would go to bills. But then I'd spend the rest at the bars, and I would buy a bag of weed, and I would maybe go to the racetrack with my buddies. And Friday morning comes along, and I'm hungover, and the roach coach, the, 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 the truck shows up that makes the food for you, and I have to borrow money from my coworkers to buy a breakfast burrito. And these old guys are like, 
What do you mean you need to borrow 250? You got paid yesterday. And if there was ever any surprise money that came in, like a tax return or a Christmas bonus, it was gone before I even knew what was happening. I mean, I would just spend it foolishly. And it was so impulsive. There was no thought about the future. There was no saving. It was all just, let's go out and have a good time. Just blowing it all freely and carelessly. The Proverbs speak a lot about the fool. And the fool doesn't plan for the future. The fool just lives for today. He lives for whatever his heart desires. And of course, if you live like this, it's not very long before you find yourself in a trap. A trap of your own making. Your folly catches up with you and you become ensnared by your own foolish decisions. Verse 14, And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. This is how these kinds of stories end. There's some kind of famine There's some kind of life crisis and everything you've been chasing comes crashing down. Could be a personal crisis that ends in addiction. Could be a financial crisis as we see here. Could be a broken marriage. It could be that the law catches up with you. Whatever the case, you find yourself pursuing a life away from God and it usually ends in a famine. There are the pleasures of sin for a season, but that season does not last. And what comes after that is desperation. And everyone can see it coming but the fool. Now, for this foolish son, the famine comes and the friends are gone. The ones who were sharing in his extravagance are nowhere to be found. All those people at the bar who were cheering his name as he said, another round of drinks on me. All gone. And he's left with empty pockets and a hangover. And what happens next is a truly devastating sight for a Jew. Verse 15, So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Now, in God's law, pigs are unclean animals. There's nothing more reprehensible to a Jew than a filthy swine. And so he goes to live in a Gentile land and he has a Gentile boss and he's slopping around with the most unclean of all animals imaginable. This would be a very menial job, I think in most cultures. Oh, I just want my child to be a doctor or a lawyer or a pig farmer. 
But this goes way beyond that. This is a picture of someone hitting rock bottom. I mean, the way Jesus is describing this here, the fact that he chose swine in his story is, is, okay, this guy has hit the bottom. Yeah, there's no going deeper than this. This is a ruined life. This is the worst it could possibly get. And, and, and he's so desperate, if that weren't bad enough, it says he's longing to eat the pods that the pigs ate. So he's, he's going to perish, he's starving to death, and he wishes he could eat the pig food. And I imagine he can't because it's not digestible. That's my guess anyway. So he's starving and he's filthy and he's working with dirty, unclean animals and even there, food starts to look good to him and it is a picture of absolute desolation. The life that promised freedom through the pleasures of sin ended where it always does, in poverty and slavery. And the mirage that he was chasing is finally seen for what it is. The promised happiness that there would be away from his father's house proved to be a lie. And something strange happens when you find yourself at the bottom. All of a sudden, the father's house doesn't seem so bad at all. All of a sudden, the structures and disciplines that the Father had put into place don't, aren't seen as stifling freedom. They're actually seen as providing it. Now it's starting to make sense. It's often from this place of self-induced misery that the Father's house is recognized as the abundant place that it always has been. But sadly, oftentimes, everything needs to be taken away before the person learns that. It all had to be taken away from him. This is what happens here. He has an awakening. Verse 17. It says, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my Father, and I will say to Him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before You. I am no longer worthy to be called Your Son. Treat me as one of Your hired servants. This man who wasted his life, who wasted his possessions, wants to ask for another chance. He says, I know what I can do. I can go to my Father. I remember around that same season of life that I shared with you a few moments ago, I was in a Wendy's drive-thru. Stoned, drunk, bloodshot eyes, and I hated my life. And I'm sitting there in my truck, 
and I look at the car in front of me and the license plate frame around their license plate says, heading in the wrong direction, God allows U-turns. Now, I was at a low place in my life. And had I not been in a low place in my life, I probably would have sought that and thought it was ridiculous. How corny and stupid. But, much like this son, I was at a very low place. And you know what? That spoke to me that day. I said, I can go to God. I can go to God. That's right. I can turn to God and ask for help. I wasn't saved that day. But that was part of a series of events of my salvation where in my blitzed, insane life, where I just partied all the time and drove myself into the pig pen, that spoke to me. In fact, after I was saved, I bought that same <laughs> license plate frame and I put it on my car. And I'm like, Lord, I pray you have some lost kid behind me. <laughs> the son says, I know what I can do. I can go to my father. He has the, the, an awakening to the insanity of his sin. And his plan is that he's going to go to the one who he betrayed, who he dishonored, who he abandoned. And he says, make me a servant in your house. I will scrub toilets. In a word, he is repenting. He is repenting. He knows his father is a good and gracious and merciful man. Maybe, just maybe, he would find it in his heart to let him in and to hire him. And so he humbles himself. He knows that he's going to perish. He knows he has no hope. He's looking for his father's mercy, and if he doesn't get mercy, he's done. Now, keep in mind the audience who is hearing this story. The critics of Jesus are giving their enthusiastic approval to this man's misery. Ah, good. That's where he belongs. He belongs feeding swine because that's all he's good for. Now you get what's coming to you. And they probably took great delight in the fact that the son was with the pigs because he belongs with the pigs. But remember the scene that's going on in front of Jesus and the reason he's telling these parables. There are prodigal sons all around him. 
There are tax collectors and sinners who have come to hear Him. And the parable is meant to show them that they can return and be forgiven. That's the point. And while the Pharisees are content to leave sinners in the pig pen, Jesus wants to, them, wants to show them the way back to the Father's house. And so verse 18, the son begins rehearsing his I have sin speech. He's going over it. He heads back home. Now we don't know how much time has passed since he left. Could be six weeks, six months, six years. Who knows? All we know is this man destroyed his life and nearly died in the process because of his own foolishness. He has nothing. He has no shoes. He has no money. He has no self-respect. He has nothing to offer his father. He comes to him empty-handed and he's looking for mercy. Now, this is a picture Jesus is presenting of salvation. This is a picture of the kind of people who will be saved. Coming to faith is not you bringing your best efforts to God. Heaven is reserved for those who come to God empty-handed, not dragging your good works with you as if you're helping God save you, not offering your obedience as if you can somehow atone for your own crimes against God, but you come without anything and you look to Him in faith and repentance and you're hoping and asking for mercy. That is what God requires. He wants you humble and He wants you broken and He wants you empty-handed. And for those who do turn to Him after much riotous living, what do you think His response is going to be? How do you think God would respond to someone who wasted their life and then came to Him and asking to be part of His heavenly home? Now, this is the turning point in the story here because the Pharisees think they know how this thing's going to end. They think they know how the Father's going to respond. And the sinners listening to Jesus, based on the beliefs of the Pharisees, have an idea how they think the Father's going to respond. And neither one thinks He's going to respond positively. Think about it. The prodigal insulted his father. He turned his back on his family. He liquidated part of their estate. He put the family's welfare in danger, all because of his lust for excitement. And rather than being wise with that money, he blew it all. What do you think the father's reaction is going to be? Will he even speak with him? Will he even allow him to step foot on his property? 
Maybe he will send some of his servants to go out there and deal with him. Or worse, maybe he will publicly shame him and send him away. Now, the prodigal is walking back to his father's house and these things must be running through his head. What is going to happen when I see my father? Verse 20. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. And here's your Easter verse. Because this is a picture of resurrection right here. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now, if there hasn't been any gasps of astonishment in the crowd up to this point, there certainly are now. There are so many details in this story that would shock the first century hearer, it's hard to know where to even start. First of all, the father was looking for his son. Did you pick up on that detail? The son, we are told, was still a long way away. A long way off. I'm picturing maybe a couple hundred yards away. The father sees a shadowy figure in the distance. And he's looking and he's eager and he's hoping He hasn't given up hope. He's seeking Him. How many sleepless nights did he spend wondering where his son could be? Wondering if he was dead or alive? How many times did he feel a knot in his stomach wondering if he would ever see him again? This is a loving father who loves his son despite how awful his son has been to him. And so the father is watching, and he's waiting, and he's hoping. And it says that when he saw him, he felt compassion. Not anger. Not bitterness. Not resentment. Here he was walking down this long, dusty road. Barefoot, stinking of swine, dressed in the rags of humility and failure. And the Father's response is compassion. And if you want to truly see the Father's heart, 
Remember, this is a parable about God's attitude towards sinners. It's this picture right here in verse 20. It says, He felt compassion and ran and embraced Him and kissed Him. He ran to Him. Now, wealthy men in this culture never ran because it was considered to be beneath them. Kenneth Bailey, who's a scholar of, the, of ancient Israel, writes this. He says, One of the main reasons why Middle Easterners of rank never ran is that they traditionally wore long robes. No one can run in a long robe without taking it up into his hands. And when this occurs, the legs are exposed, which is considered humiliating. So there is a certain level of respect to be maintained here, especially if you were wealthy. And it would be beneath you if anyone was to see you running. And here is this man, probably in front of all of his servants. Maybe even some people in the local village had come out to see what was going on. And he comes running and he embraces his son. Now, this is a picture of God's attitude towards sinners. Not just little sinners, like I tell a white lie once in a while, but outlandish sinners, tax collectors and prostitutes, prodigal sons. This is what God is like toward those who turn to Him. He is not sitting there anxiously waiting to condemn them and to crush them. He is watchful and He is compassionate and He is eager to embrace them. The father in this story could have condemned his son and been justified. He could have scolded and shamed him and not been in the wrong for doing so. He could have had him flogged. He could have had him sent away. He could have had him banished from his property forever. Or if he was a merciful man, he could have even accepted the terms that his son offered and made him work. And he says, I'm going to give you the most menial job for the next year, and I'm going to watch you. And I'm going to see if your repentance is real. That seems reasonable. He could have done that. It makes sense to religious people that we must practice penance. That makes sense to religious people. I did a lot of work with Jehovah's Witnesses um, as a young Christian. I ran a support group for two years for ex-Jehovah's Witnesses. They are so psychologically abused in that group that they need a recovery group. So I used to run that with my hopes of leading them to Christ. And so I read tons of their literature. I had a huge library of their books. I've heard hundreds of testimonies of people who've left the Watchtower. So if you sin in the Watchtower Society, which 
could take all kinds of forms. It could be a sin that the Bible talks about, um, some kind of you know immorality, or it could be just disagreeing or disobeying the elders of the local congregation, whatever. You are brought before a judiciary of three elders, and they can excommunicate you. And when they do that, they shun you. So you are not only forced to not come back to that kingdom hall, but everyone who knows you must shun you. They cannot stop and talk to you. And if you are found talking to someone who's been disfellowshipped, you could be disfellowshipped yourself. That's how cults keep the cult mindset going. They can't have any outside sources of reality check. And so if someone ever leaves, they don't want anyone in their group talking to that person. But if that person decides, you know what, I'm going to go back to the kingdom hall and I'm going to try to get back into the good graces of Jehovah God, they have a six-month reinstatement period where they have to come to all the meetings, two meetings on Tuesday, two meetings on Thursday, one meeting on Sunday, so five a week, and they sit in the back, and no one is allowed to talk to them, and they are not allowed to talk to anyone. And if they do that for six months, then they welcome them back into the congregation. That makes sense to the religiously minded. They don't understand grace. The Pharisees would not understand this story that Jesus is telling. It doesn't make any sense. Grace is the kindness that you don't deserve, and the Son certainly deserved nothing from His Father. But instead, look, verse 22, bring quickly the best robe and put it on Him, and put a ring on His hand and shoes on His feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. The best robe would have been his father's festal robe that only came out on special occasions, maybe once or twice a year. He covers his son's shame with it. He puts a costly ring on his finger, which servants never wore rings, but a son would wear a ring because that shows that he had authority in the household. And he puts shoes on his feet. Slaves and servants uh, went barefoot. But the father is saying by doing all this, this is no servant. This is my son. And the reason for all of this, he says, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate Imagine how astonished the son was at such lavish grace shown to him. Imagine how remorseful he, he is after that. Do you think he's going to dishonor his father after this? No, he just finally understands grace. He finally understands the love that the father has for him. And the tax collectors and sinners are listening to this and they can't believe it. And the Pharisees are gnashing their teeth at this story. They hate it. 
The story was going so well. Why would you ruin it with such a terrible ending? Who would do such a thing as that father has done? Who would do that? God would. God. God does that. The Pharisees hate this because they live by rules. And when you live by rules, you don't understand grace. And so everyone is in two categories in their minds. The ones who keep the rules and the ones who don't. And the Pharisees keep the rules and the tax collectors and the sinners don't. And therefore, they are shut out of the kingdom. But here is Jesus inviting these prodigal men and women into the Father's house. And grace upon grace is poured out upon them. And He continues to do this to this very day. People who make shipwreck of their life. People who ruin themselves. People who have greatly offended the Father for years can turn to Him and can come to His house and be restored. And this is the message of the Gospel. Now, the story could end there, but it doesn't. And we're going to see next time, it's not only the younger son that needs to be redeemed, but also the older one, the older brother. His sin is very different, but it is there nonetheless. But in closing, if you have lived in opposition to God if you have wandered away from Him in any way, I got good news for you today. God allows U-turns. <laughs> you can be like the prodigal son. You could have squandered your father's resources. He has blessed you. He has given you gifts and talents and resources. And you have lived for yourself and you have blown it, and the Father is calling to you today to be reconciled. He's watching. He's watchful. But you must humble yourself. You must admit that you have sinned against your Father. You must turn from that sin and be willing to be with Him and live with Him. And Jesus says, if anyone comes to me, I will never turn them away. And here is God celebrating over this dead child who has come back to life, who was lost and is found. And if I could just make a tie-in with Easter here, it is like a spiritual resurrection. That is what God does all throughout the world today. He raises lives from the dead. Easter is about a future resurrection when all will be raised from the grave physically. But He resurrects lives today. Let us pray.
Lord, it is good. It is good to know the Father. It is good to be reconciled. If there's anyone here this evening who has wandered a lot or has wandered a little, I pray that they would think upon this, that you welcome them into your house. Even if they have done great evil, even if they have resisted you and rebelled against you, they can come and be redeemed and loved by the Father. And He will celebrate over you. Oh God, may we be ministers of mercy in this world. May we be vessels of Your glory who share this good news with those prodigals out there. And they're all over the place. Please help us, Lord. Please call them to Yourself. Please use us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.